Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode number 85, and my name is Scott Gardner. Joining me, as always, is my very good friend, Michael Bailey. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this time around, uh, some, uh, some interesting stuff going on here. We have the origin of a, of a major uh, player. Uh, for All-Star Squadron, and we have the exciting conclusion of a saga that we've been following for 10 chapters now. Plus, we've got uh, some bonus material, too, so... Should be an interesting show this time around, I'm thinking. What do you think? I think it is. Uh, for the last couple of episodes, we've been doing emails before we get into the main part of the show, but Scott and I had a little powwow. Uh, our attorneys got involved, as they always have to do when we discuss things involving the show. <laughs> uh, there's still stuff about the show coming back that we can never tell you thanks to the non-disclosure agreements. But we're going to barrel on through with the next five episodes and then do an all-email episode, which I think will give both of us a little bit of a break from the normal, uh, I wouldn't say grind of doing the show, because I never look at the show as a grind mm-hmm. in, in any way. I, I, I always look at it as a joy to do. Mm-hmm. And again, that's what I have to say uh, for, for the contracts we signed. <laughs> back. So, uh, but no, never fear. Keep sending in the emails. We will get to them uh, eventually. Just probably not in the episodes uh, leading up. But of course, after the email episode, we got something really big. So, but we'll be talking about that in a couple more shows. So, no emails this time. It feels weird because we've been doing them pretty pretty steady for the last couple of episodes. We have. We've had a, uh, I mean, they, the listeners have really answered the call. I mean, we went from an empty basket to, oh my God, you know, this thing is, uh, you know, our, our cup runneth over. So keep them coming. I love it. I love it. I love, you know, hearing about what you guys are liking, you know, what you think we could be doing better, things you want us to, to touch on in the future. I, I'm really enjoying it. So keep them coming. We will address them all. It just might take a little bit of time because we don't uh, we don't want to interrupt too much the natural flow of events and where we're headed with the show because we figured, you know, 
God knows that our you know year-long hiatuses have already done that sort of thing for us, but we will uh, find the time and find a way to uh, to address all emails sent into show. So keep those uh, letters and postcards coming, as they used to say. We love. It. Uh, but to the guy that keeps wanting us to do a cherry pop tart podcast, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> how, I mean, one, how would you synopsize those without it getting really uncomfortable? So, <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, her. You know, there was a dolphin in one issue. I mean, it was just terrible. Maybe we could do a special <laughs> cherry pop tart special. <laughs> we should do, we should think about that sometime. Just t- you know, just a show titled that. Not necessarily that's really the content of the show. But man, <laughs> would you, you could sure guarantee some downloads with something like that. Maybe that'll be the name of the next uh, Christmas special. <laughs> I was at the comic shop, uh, Dave's Comics in Fayetteville, Georgia. And I was digging through some of the comics he had piled up. And at the bottom of one of the stacks, he had a bunch of trade paperbacks of Cherry Pop-Tart. I'm like, do you really want these just lying out? Really? <laughs> Okay. Guess you're not worried about kids coming in. This is Georgia. We've had one comic shop uh, basically shut down and the owner's life ruined by somebody mm-hmm. uh, having him arrested for uh, selling indecent material. So well, I can still remember the days where there were comic shops where, you know, it was like going to the porno shop. There was a special room or, you know, the... The, the video shops that had porn in a special room, you know, there were comic shops that used to have, you know, like Cherry Pop-Tart and Omaha the Cat Dancer in a special room or in a special, you know, cubby of the of the comic shop because it was, you know, material that you didn't want a kid to be able to just chance across. I remember yeah, those days. My ex, uh, one of my ex-roommates from the late 90s, uh, I ran into him just yesterday, actually, and he was telling me that when he worked for Titans, there was a box. And you had to know that the box was there, and you had to ask for the box. Yep. Uh, that had all that stuff in it. But otherwise, you really weren't going to find it. So. Yep. But we're not here to talk about pornographic comics from the 1980s featuring... Oh, wait, we're not? Oh, okay, well, good night. <laughs> I have lost Scott forever. First book we're talking about today, folks, is actually a really... It's a really big deal, but you might not think about it. Because this issue, uh, which is issue 41 of All-Star Squadron, uh, cover dated January 1985, says, Now it can be told, revealed after four decades, the origin of Starman. And to me... This, uh, Arville Jones, Jerry Ordway, and you can really tell Jerry Ordway inked this cover, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, this to me is the start of the eventual Secret Origins comic book. Mm-hmm. We would get about a year or so after this, uh, this ser- this, this issue came out. Because eventually, especially after a certain, you know, cataclysmic event, uh, All-Star Squadron for a little while turns into the origins of the All-Stars, where it's just one issue, one-offs, basically, of different heroes featuring their origin. I mean, we're even going to talk about, we're going to talk about Todd, Todd McFarlane drawing Dr. Fate coming down the line. How weird is that? Though I really liked that cover. So, But I have the synopsis for this one. This is, as I said, All-Star Squadron number 41, Catch a Falling Starman. 
It was released on October 25th, 1984. Credits, Roy Thomas, plotter, editor, and scripter for pages 1 to 3 and page 23. Paul Kupperberg provided the dialogue for pages 4 to 22. Arvell Jones as the new penciler in residence. Bill Collins, not Phil Collins, though it would be cool to, you know, because he is an easy lover, uh, is the inker and embellisher. Gene D'Angelo is the colorist. L. Lois and Clark letterers. That's got to be some kind of pseudonym. Right. Either that or that's just really, like, uh, an amazing coincidence. So... (laughs) The quote for this issue is, Out of this war, a new world must be born, where the products of the intellect, science, and art will serve society, not the individuals, for achieving wealth. That's Nikola Tesla, scientist from 1942. As the all-stars are returning to the perisphere, Starman plummets to the ground. Firebrand, with an assist from Hawkman and Green Lantern, get him to get him safely to the ground and into their headquarters, where Tarantula freaks out a little at the sight of the unconscious hero. Starman's hood falls away, and Firebrand recognizes him as Ted Knight, playboy and all-around rich guy. This prompts Tarantula to have a good old-fashioned flashback to Ted's origins that he was recently made privy to, and is apparently going to write a book about, eventually, and expose everyone's real names. I'm kind of surprised they're still talking to this guy. Ted's not... Ted Knight's... Ted Knight's... Is it really Ted Knight? I never really put that together before, but I guess it is. <laughs> was it, wasn't he the guy from Too Close for Comfort? I thought he was the guy from the Mary Tyler Moore show. And Caddyshack. Yeah. <laughs> Ted <laughs> You'll get nothing in like it. Uh, I love Caddyshack. Ted Knight's life was kind of empty as a playboy, and one night his girlfriend Doris calls him out on this, even poking fun at his hobby of astronomy. Wasn't Ted also the the narrator on the Super Friends? uh, I'm one of those, yes. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, Yep. he insists that his telescope, which he designed, is quite important, and that he is not the layabout she thinks he is. Suddenly, the band that was playing at the club starts robbing the place, but since they are in Gotham and Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson were already there, Batman and Robin make the scene and start beating criminal ass. Ted spots one of the thugs about to hit Robin from behind, and he calls out to the lad to warn him. Despite that bit of assistance and some further help, Batman doesn't see how Ted was giving the dynamic duo a hand and finishes off the gang with ease before checking on Robin. Afterwards, Doris turns Ted down for what he calls a nightcap, and what I'm assuming is making the beast with two backs. Ted feels uneasy and vows that he doesn't want to stay a milksop forever. So he gets Charles Atlas's uh, book, and he starts working out, and now he's the one kicking... Oh, wait, that's not what happens at all. (laughs) Several days later, Ted is in Washington, D.C. with his cousin Sandra, and the two discuss Ted's unease and what he's going to do about it. She shows him the lab she has constructed in a mostly unoccupied portion of her father's mansion and some of the discoveries her friend Dr. Abraham Davis has discovered. One of these is a device that can produce a black light if it ever gets working. Sandra wants his help with a device called the Ultra Dynamo, but Ted becomes distracted by something called the Gravity Rod, something that Davis believes would wield great power and give its user the ability to overcome gravity itself. Ted takes the gravity rod, but refuses to help with anything else, much to Sandra's consternation. 
He re returns to his mansion in New York and begins to experiment with the rod. Some time ago, Ted had discovered certain previously unknown cosmic rays radiating from the stars. And with the gravity rod, he finally finds a way to harness those rays. His initial experiments are a little rocky, but soon he finds some control over the device. He calls Sandra to share the news, but she doesn't want to have anything to do with him after saving her father from some thugs and becoming a mystery woman known as the Phantom Lady. This strengthens Ted's resolve, and he forges an identity of his own and even sends a note to the FBI to contact them if they ever are in a bind. Several days later, Ted goes out with Doris again while a series of disasters befuddles the FBI who could not get a hold of the JSA. An agent finds Starman's note and contacts him. Ted feels the rod in his pants start vibrating. <laughs> I actually had a little thing here that said, let Scott snicker. And he realizes that the, <laughs> FBI, and he realizes the FBI is actually trying to call him. Suddenly, the power goes out, which frightens Doris a bit. He makes an excuse to D Doris that doesn't go over too well and takes to the skies after donning his Starman outfit. He meets with Agent Woodley at the FBI, who tells him that the Brotherhood of the Electron uh, is, uh, group is stealing the city's electricity. Starman tracks the group to their headquarters and makes short work of the first member he encounters. Dr. Doog, the group's leader, takes exception to his man's failure and kills him, even though Starman is able to deflect the ray with his marital aid. Suddenly, a trapdoor opens under his feet, but Starman is able to overcome this with the rod and finds Dr. Abraham Davis tied to a chair beneath him. Davis recognizes the rod and begins hurling accusations at Starman, but is surprised when the hero frees him. Doog and his minions confront Davis and Starman, but Ted is able to, to not only overcome Doog's hypnotism, but beat the holy hell out of his minions as well. <laughs> Doog tries to use the Ultra Dynamo on them, but Starman uses his gravity rod to destroy the machine. This sends Doog running, but the villain falls afoul of his own trapdoor. Starman and Davis escape, and Davis gives him his blessing to use the rod for heroic purposes. Sometime later... Ted and Doris make up, and Ted decides to not tell his girlfriend about being Starman. Back in the present, Ted revives crying, Look out! Look out! His fellow All-Stars try to calm him down, but once he is good and awake, he warns them that the nightmare they thought he was having is very real, and soon it is liable to engulf them all. Excellent job, sir. Excellent job. I left out a bunch of stuff, but I figured we could talk about it in the <laughs> All right, so historical notes for this issue from the All-Star Companion, Volume 2. Read thusly. Let's see here. First one we've got, because of, a, of combined pressures of comics and screenwriting, what was Roy Thomas' screenwriting during this time? Uh, could have been when he was working on the X-Men film with Jerry Conway. He, uh, he also wrote Fire and Ice, which was an animated film. I remember that. He was doing a bunch of different stuff. Okay. Uh, because of combined pressures of comics and screenwriting, Roy Thomas had to turn over dialogue of all but four pages of the issue to new scripter Paul Kupperberg and also relinquished dialoguing chores on 43 through 44. In the framing sequence, a newspaper headline of March 4th, 1943 notes Japanese claims of victory uh, in the Battle of the Coral Sea, February 27th through March 1st. This encounter between the Allied and Japanese uh, navies 
resulted in the sinking of several ships on both sides, but for the first time the Allied fleet had halted the enemy's advance in the Pacific. I, I missed that entirely because I didn't think that this series got to 1943. Yeah, I think that might be a, I think that might be a uh, misprint. Like a typo. So is it supposed to be March 4th, 1942? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that's what it is, because they, they never got out of 1942 even in Young All-Star. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. All right, let's see if we can find this in the issue here. Where the hell is it talking about? Framing sequence. Uh, let's see. Okay, I don't. I see the newspaper he's talking about. I don't see a date listed anywhere. It says, Japs claim victory over allies in recent battle in Java Sea. That's what he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see... All right, is there a date? March 4th, 1942. It's the very first words in the story. So, yeah, it's a typo. Okay, that's yep. fine. That's what I thought. Cause, that's uh, because that, that, that's, that's a pretty big typo. Yeah, it is, because it, it puts the story a whole year later than what it should happen. But also, like like I said, I'm... I'm fairly certain that we never make it out of 1942 in this series or the, the sequel series to follow. Uh, anyway, the uh, next one here is the All-Star Squadron number uh, 41, the issue that you just uh, synopsized, features the first origin of Starman ever published. Since Ted Knight was inspired to become a costume hero by seeing Batman in action, it was negated in the post-Crisis on Infinite Earths universe where there hadn't been a Batman in 1941. Big old spoiler there. Uh, Starman's origin is narrated by Tarantula, who'd learn it from Ted only, uh, who'd learned it rather from Ted only a night or two earlier for his projected book on superheroes. Sandra Knight's decision to become Phantom Lady is also related in flashback as she defends her father, a U.S. senator, from kidnappers in a scene adapted from Freedom Fighters number 15, July, August, 1978. So, okay, because that seemed familiar to me, but I always assumed that the story in Freedom Fighters was reprinted from somewhere else. So apparently it wasn't. So here you have, I was going to say the retcon of a retcon. It's not even the retcon of a retcon. It's, It's incorporating a retcon into another retcon's continuity. So that's very interesting. I like that idea. Uh, when Starman fly, uh, first flies by means of the gravity rod, he wonders momentarily whether he should have whipped up a mask to go along with this getup. I was thinking that uh, why didn't he think of uh, coming up with like a thong to keep the thing? Because you know he even I think he even comments to himself that he better hold on for dear life because if he lets go of the thing, he's going to plummet to his death. So yeah. I was always kind of surprised that he didn't have, like, a strap or something on the thing. Sorry, you said thong. I had a different image. Of my <laughs> uh, FBI agent Woodley Allen originated in Starman's Advent- uh, Adventure Comics Tales. Roy Thomas wouldn't have dared give a character a name so close to that of his favorite comedian. Really? Woody Allen is his favorite comedian? Okay. To each his own. The portion of the story dealing with Dr. Doog is based on the first published Starman story in Adventure Comics number 61 from April 1941. The quote-unquote special page in number 41 is the JSA drawing done by uh, Joe Kubert for Jim Stranko's 1970 History of Comics Volume 1, 
used with both both gents' permission. You know, I have both volumes of that, which I'm led to believe is getting rarer and more expensive all the time. I got them both for a song, and you know, a I've still never read them. I I need to get around to doing that one of these days. I was so proud of myself when I tracked those down and bought them, and then I've never actually made the time to read them. I think I tried reading it once, and I, I just found it too dense and, I'll be honest, a little boring, and I just never finished it. But I was a kid when I got those, so if I went back and tried to read it now, hopefully I'd, I'd be more into it and I'd know more of, I'd understand more of what they were actually talking about, you know, with the older creators and the older characters and stuff. I think that's pretty much it for historical notes on this one. So what have you got for actual notes on this one? I really like this issue, but it's one of those things where I like it because it's an origin issue. Right. You know, as far as fitting in with the overall All-Star Squadron, you know, series, it really doesn't, except for the beginning page and the end page. Right. But having said that, I love, uh, there's still a part of me that loves seeing the origins of characters. And to know that this is actually the first time anybody ever fleshed out his origin, you know, at the time it surprised me, but now I'm not really surprised at all, because that's just how Golden Age comics went. The cover to this thing is amazing. Uh, Arvell Jones penciled it, but Jerry Ordway heavily inked it. And, you know, he just... I mean, you really can't look at that gravity rod any other way as a marital aid, but, you know, I, I still love Starman's costume, especially his Superman boots, mm-hmm. which uh, which, I, which I've always kind of, ever since it was pointed out to me by James Robinson that he had them, mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. Arvell Jones as an artist, he's a welcome addition to the book. I think he does a really good job. He's got a very interesting detailed style. Like there is, you know, especially on faces and shadowing, he does a very good job. Uh, I don't know why Tarantula's all freaked out on page three. Uh, you know, he's like, lay him down somewhere. Hurry! Like, you you were sitting reading a newspaper three seconds ago. Why are you all upset? These are the people that just rescued him. So that was kind of strange. Um, why are they telling Tarantula everything about their private lives when he has every intention of writing a book about it? I thought they had secret identities. Right. So, uh, bringing in Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne into the party that Ted and Doris go to is actually really cool. You know, he's, uh, you know, Dick is wanting to go see the baseball game. Bruce says not tonight. You get the sense that when the band holds the place up, they were there for them the entire time. Right. They were just waiting for them to make their move. Uh, Arvell Jones draws a very good Batman. He does not draw a very good Robin, no. unfortunately. I'm not really all that happy with that. Uh, the whole thing with Sandra and Ted being cousins, even though they came actually from different comic book companies, is one of those times where, you know, we, we've kind of gone back and forth with Roy Thomas on how many connections he's actually going to make between the characters. Right. Like, you know... Chuck Grayson, who was Robot Man's assistant, is actually related to Dick Grayson. That's a little far-fetched. Here, I actually really like it. Uh, I like the fact that, you know, she's, you know, that you get the sense that they, you know, as cousins, they've been really close their entire life. She's trying to bring him into doing something really big, and he basically grabs the, the gravity rod and is like, I'm out of here. 
You have fun. I'm going to go play with this. The, um, the origin sequence is very Steve Ditko. And I actually kind of like that. Because on page 11, that, that panel with all the moons and the stars and the planets and everything, mm-hmm. uh, and his face is kind of transparent, that totally looks like a Ditko picture. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of weird, because you wouldn't think Starman Steve Ditko, but I think he drew one of the Starman. He one. did. He Maybe drew the Prince Gavin Starman in Adventure Comics. The... Uh, I love when he actually gets the gravity rod to work. It's not perfect. He, You know, he thinks about the fact that he's going to die. He finds out how destructive it is. It's just very kind of cool that he doesn't, like, he, you know, it's not imbued with the, the powers, and then suddenly he can use it perfectly. You know, there, there's a bit of a learning curve. Uh, Sander is kind of a bitch to him uh, when he calls. Uh, you know, it's like basically like, I'm not going to help you because now I'm a superhero. Bye-bye. But at least we know they they uh, eventually team up later on, and after that we get a, f- a fairly uh, faithful retelling of Adventure Comics number sixty one, uh, where Starman fights you know Doctor Doog and he's contacted by an FBI agent, and if you want to hear somebody talk about that issue, uh, head on over. Only three episodes exist, but it was the Starman Observatory was a very short-lived podcast hosted by John Wilson, J. David Weeder, and Charlie Niemeyer. Uh, and they covered, basically in the three episodes they did, they covered the Starman adventures from 61 to 69. Uh, and they sound crazy, by the way. <laughs> they sound like a lot of fun to read. Eventually I'm going to have to try to track down that uh, archive edition. But uh, but reading but after listening to that last year, late last year, and, and reading this, it was kind of cool. The art really picks up in the final few pages. Arvel Jones really comes into his own on the title. Starman looks amazing. Uh, Doctor Abraham Davis looks a little evil at times, <laughs> like kind of an evil like Albert Einstein. Uh, Doctor Doog actually comes off as physically imposing, despite having a really stupid name. And at the end, we, we get the typical, well, I'm not going to tell my girlfriend that I'm a superhero thing, followed by the setup for the next adventure. So overall, this was a really good issue. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I liked the Joe Kubert, even though we've been kind of hard on Joe Kubert. That picture in the back is actually really good, especially Hawkman. Uh, the little pinup in the back of it. Right. Um, uh, not really sure why Spectre is just hanging out. He's like, what's up, everybody? I'm just going to stand over here and be imposing. Y'all just stay there. But no, I, 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 I you know, as, as hard as we were on Joe Kubert's covers to the early issues of this series, I, I have to say that I like this pinup quite a bit. And that's pretty much all I got on it. I, uh, I actually never took a single note on this one. Only because when I started reading it, got sucked right into it. I uh, I enjoyed it very very much. I love the cover on this. I'll agree with you. I think it's a great cover image. I really like um, on Starman. I realized that that Jones did the the penciling on this, but 
I will say I, I think that uh, Ordway pretty much just supersedes his style to a degree to where if it didn't say, you know, if it was not signed by Jones, I would never have known that there was another artist involved. It just looks like classic Ordway to me. I really, really like the cover on this one. Just the way he stands out, you know, in the foreground is the figure, but then the images in the background that are kind of recapping the origin as well. And I love the shot of uh, Dr. Dude firing his cannon and Starman's blocking it with his gravity rod. It just, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, what was the, I'm trying to remember the name of the very first Fleischer cartoon where the, the villain had the, the electrothanasia ray and fires it and Superman just keeps punching the ray to stop it. This is almost like the same type of thing, except Starman's using his gravity rod to stop it. I just like, I love images like that. And it's just what it reminded me of. Um, I, I enjoyed the issue very much. Um, the art was a little wonky to me, but as I recall, I think, uh, Arville Jones just gets better and better over time. And, as you said here, by the end of the issue, the art's pretty solid. So I, I think we can actually witness him style and refining his style, you know, to a point to where you get to the end of the issue and the art is actually much improved right within the one issue itself. Uh, I liked it. I don't know if I realized what a big deal this really was the first time I read it as a kid, you know, that, hey, this, you know, this is the the very first origin we're getting for this character. I'm not sure I really realize that and while i agree with you that normally the whole you know let's tie up all the loose ends everything's got to connect to it, each other type of thing i actually do like ted and sandra being cousins i'll uh i'll actually embrace that a lot more than i would embrace like dick grayson and uh and chuck grayson being what were they they were cousins as well right yeah, somewhere like that. I don't know why that one seems like more of a stretch to me. It just does. But this one seems natural somehow. I, I don't know. Maybe I've just had time to get used to it all these years or something. But I really did enjoy this. I want to know, what does Starman keep in that holster that he wears? Because it looks like he has a gun. But do we ever actually see him use it? Does he ever pull anything out? Um, hmm. Which page are we looking at? Uh, well, I, I was noticing it again here on page 17 as he's headed to Duke's lair. You know, you can really see it uh, on that third panel, that holster that he's got on his on his right side, right on his hip. And you know what? I just noticed something in that, let's see, it's one, two, sixth panel. He, he does have a thong on his... Uh, or at least I think he does. It actually looks like he may have built a strap. Well, that would just make sense onto his uh, onto his gravity rods. So maybe after the test flight. Oh, he did. Yep. If you to page sixteen, when he goes into action as Starman for the first time, he has the rod strapped to his wrist. I just noticed that. So it was just during that test flight where he didn't have it because he does actually remark. Uh, that's on page twelve, panel four. He's flying through the air in this very erratic flight pattern, and he remarks to himself, he's thinking, like riding a bucking bronc, only worse, have to keep a grip on this thing, otherwise it's a long way down. So after this little test flight, he makes him 
superhero costume and contact contacts the FBI and all that. The first time that he does actually change into his outfit and goes into action as Starman, he does have a strap built onto the the uh, cosmic rod by that point so that he doesn't accidentally drop it. Because yeah, that would that'd be very embarrassing. Going to action yeah. as a superhero and the thing that makes you fly, you accidentally drop it and plummet to your death. Yeah, that would that would not be an awesome debut as a superhero. I like this. I, I liked it a lot because it actually gave some explanation for some of the, the powers that he has because I don't recall the cosmic rod or the, you know, in this case, it's the gravity rod. I don't remember it ever being defined very well. It just, it was another one of those MacGuffins that just seemed to do whatever you needed it to do when you needed it to do it. And here, I think Roy Thomas actually attempts to explain it a bit and, and give it somewhat of a, of a defined power set. And I like that. I appreciated that. I, I dug it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I don't have any real specific notes or a whole lot to say about it. I just, it was fun. And I did get a real Secret Origins vibe off of this. So I, I kind of wonder if the if the success of this issue is what kind of led to, uh, you know, directly into Secret Origins. Because Secret Origins itself would be very similar in format to this issue. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean that, that's exactly what they did. And, you know, from what I understand, a lot of the early, you know, ideas for... Um, for the um, Secret Origins series were basically coming out of the things he was doing in All-Star Squadron. Right. But no, uh, the, the one little uh, one little fun note, the uh, the DC Direct Starman figure that came out, God, well over a decade ago, really, mm-hmm. uh, did have the holster on his side, uh, which I thought was a neat little, uh, rea- uh, neat little touch. And it had a thing in it where when you put the star rod in his hand, there was a little metal piece in his hand and a metal piece on the star rod, and he had a battery in him, mm-hmm. and the rod would light up. Yep. Are you talking really the, cool. the Jack Knight one? No, I'm talking the Ted Knight. Oh, okay, because the, the, I know the Jack Knight one, because I have that one. I have the Jack Knight one, and that one had the metal, you know, touch the pieces of metal, and it would light up as Ted Knight one does. That's cool. I'm going to have to get uh, one of those one of these days. I don't have that one. Do you know if this Super Junior's Holiday Special ever came out? I have no idea. I always thought they were cute. But that's about it for this particular issue as as far as my notes on it. Uh, I, like I said, I never actually took any notes. I just got sucked in and just uh, and just went for the ride. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a heck of a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, let's take a break, and when we get back, uh, Scott's going to tell us all about the exciting conclusion. The final furious chapter of The Generation Saga. Well, hey there. This is Huckleberry Ham. And when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. 
new funny books, scary funny books, movies about funny books, funny books about movies, British fellers talking about funny books, and lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com Two True Freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Alright folks, we are back and as I said before the break, we have Scott who's going to give us the skinny on Infinity Incorporated number 10. Yes. All right, let's go ahead and dive straight into this. This is the January 1985 cover dated issue. This was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, October 18th, 1984. Cover on this one is by uh, Jerry Ordway, and it depicts the Ultra with his hands, with his fists clenched and his arms upraised, saying, I win! And in the background, he has six of the Infinitors are all chained to the wall. And in the foreground, in front of Ultra, you have the uh, the older JSAers who are uh, now all turned evil. Each one of them has a dagger, and they're stabbing it into different portions of a map of the United States. It's actually a really strange, uh, really strange picture because it looks like. Wonder Woman and Superman are kind of barging in on uh, the other three heroes because Wonder Woman literally looks like she's shoving the atom aside, like get get the hell out of the way. I just oh, this is an homage cover, so oh, is it? What's it an homage to? Oh, from an All Star Comics issue with the uh, injustice. injustice. Okay, yes, that's all right. Now that you say that, yes, I, I know exactly the one you're talking. About. I had not put that together, but you're absolutely right. Uh, what else? Original cover price, $1.25. And as Mike said, the it says here right on the cover, the final furious chapter of the Generation Saga. That's the cover copy on this one. So, of course, Roy Thomas is the writer-editor. Jerry Ordway is the penciler. 
Mike Macklin and Tony Dizaniga are the inkers. And man, can you tell when the art changes in this? And I love that. Uh, you know, with all apologies to Mike Macklin, dude, I was so excited when Dizaniga showed up on this book because I dig his stuff a lot. I, I think the art style just seriously jumped up a notch when he comes on to ink uh, to ink Ordway. Uh, we also have Dan Thomas as the co-plotter, called Cody this time around, as the letter, and Adrian Roy and Anthony Tallon are the colorists. The name of the story is A Dark and Deadly Place. This issue's quote, Leave Death to the Professionals, was uh, spoken by Trevor Howard in The Third Man. I think it's worth noting that Trevor Howard played the council member who threatened to banish Jor-El to the Phantom Zone in <laughs> Superman the movie. Did you catch that? No. He sure as hell is. I did. Well, I know I knew Trevor Howard was in Superman the movie. I just didn't understand that. I, I just didn't catch the connection right away. You know what I'm saying? Yep. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and the Atom confront the Ultra-Humanite. They are pissed about what's been done to them, namely being drowned by Ultra in the waters of the stream of ruthlessness and turned into bad guys. Ultra demands the heroes get on their knees and plead for the privilege of serving him for the rest of their lives. Seems that the water functions like a powerful addictive drug and the heroes need their fix. Ultra threats to destroy the stream if they don't comply. But tell you what, says Ultra Humanite, we can forego the bowing and scraping thing if you'll just do one little favor for me. Outside, and by incredibly well-timed coincidence, all eight members of Infinity Incorporated gather and compare notes. They are Power Girl, the Huntress, Nuclon, Jade, Obsidian, the Silver Scarab, Fury... And Northwind. They storm the villain's lair, and Ultra Humanite repeats his offer to the JSAers. Destroy Infinity Inc., and he will allow them to drink again from the waters of Kuihaha. Which <laughs> is just a stupid ass name, but I love it. Kuihaha. <laughs> Superman opens the fight by melting the lead container Power Girls holding. It contains kryptonite that she was keeping as an ace in the hole against her stronger cousin, but now it is exposed and she goes down. The Atom clouts Huntress and she drops. The other kids square off with the turned evil adults, and we get some very interesting fist-to-cuff matchups, including Jade versus Superman, Wonder Woman versus Nuclon, Atom versus Fury, Green Lantern versus the Silver Scarab with a power ring generated chainsaw, I might add, and Hawkman whacking Norda upside the head with his mace, which was one of my personal favorite moments of the entire issue. Way to go, Hawkman. See, Luke, I'm not totally down on Hawkman after all. During the battle, Ultra Humanite... But only when he's beating on Norda. Yes, exactly. <laughs> only when he's clubbing my least favorite Infinitor. <laughs> During the battle, Ultra Humanite hides behind his force field and even manages to mentally shrug off an attack by Obsidian. The battle rages with the older heroes having the upper hand at first, 
but the tide uh, begins to turn as is that the JSAers are not working together as a team and are not at all that familiar with the powers of the Infinity Inc. members. When teamwork allows them to take Superman and Wonder Woman off the table, Ultra realizes where this is all headed and so releases the waters of Kuihaha, intending to drown everyone and make them his evil slaves. But the joke is on him because what is released is not the stream of ruthlessness. Instead, inky blackness envelops everyone, and they find themselves in limbo, where Brainwave's senior and junior have been hanging out with the star-spangled kid. Brainwave the senior, by virtue of his superior brain, brought everyone to this particular party, and this pisses off ultra-humanite, but good. He and Brainwave Sr. stage a mental battle royale that kills the bulbous-headed little freak and enrages his son, Brainwave Jr., who is just getting to know his dear old dad. Despite my disdain for all things Brainwave, I kind of liked this next sequence where a furious Hank Kin, uh, King, rather, Hank King, uh, Brainwave Jr., blasts straight past ultra-humanite's defenses and reduces the villain to a blubbering, drooling moron. The Infinitors link hands and chant there's no place like home and are transported back to the mountaintop outside Ultra's headquarters. Silver Scarab, Fury, and Jade destroy and seal up the entrance to the lake, presumably the Stream of Ruthlessness. The JSA, apparently out of their funk now, I guess, are humbled and thank the un- the younger heroes for saving them and the earth from themselves. And on the final splash page that uh, somewhat resembles the cover of the seventh issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Generation Saga concludes with Brainwave Jr. cradling the body of his dead father while the assembled heroes silently pay their respects. Next issue, The Reason Why ultimate secret behind the origin of Infinity Incorporated. Very good, sir. Thank you. Now going to the historical notes, which you can find if you have it at home in All-Star Companion Volume 4. Not too much this time, actually. Notes, this issue's cover is an homage to Erwin Hasen's cover art for All-Star Comics number 37, just as is the cover of this volume, of course. This issue also includes a pinup of Infinity Incorporated by Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala, with text by RT. Those two artists were announced as the future regular art team on this title, but it was not to be. And the Ultra Humanite learns Hawkman and Hawkgirl's civilians' identities in this one. So what do you got on this one, Scott? You know, Precious Little again, um, and this one's weird because... Unlike the All-Star one, where I just kind of got sucked into it and never took any notes or anything, you know, I read this one, obviously, and then I had to go back and, like, reread it and skim it for my synopsis, and then I flipped back through it a third time with the express interest of, you know, taking notes to discuss, and I essentially ended up addressing pretty much everything I wanted to address in my synopsis itself, which I hope doesn't come across as too snarky or anything, because I really did dig the story. There were just little things I like to make fun of. 
But honestly, the the single note that I ended up taking that I didn't work into my synopsis comes down to uh, page five, panel three, where, all right, so let me set the scene for you here. You've got Jade and Obsidian are outside Ultra's headquarters, right, in the mountains, when Nuclon comes flying up in a helicopter. And so they're comparing notes. And then, you know, let me see, what the hell? I guess, was Hector, were Hector and Lita already there as no, well? No, they, they just fly up. They fly up. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very strange. Like I said in my synopsis, all of a sudden, just conveniently, everybody shows up at the exact same time. So they're all comparing notes about, well, who did you capture? Or who did you let get away? And all this sort of thing. And they're, they're recapping everything. And, you know, there's the observation that Wonder Woman got away and she flew off with uh, Lita's father, Steve Trevor, who was badly hurt and they couldn't stop her. And Jade says grim, but at least Hawkman and she's starting to say, well, at least Hawkman's been captured or at least Hawkman's, you know, in custody or something to that effect. When a voice from off screen says, I fear not, Jenny Lynn, and then you, you get to the next panel and it's Norda coming in. And he says, Carter Hall uh, escaped me and I flew back here. Uh, I followed as swiftly as I could. And Silver Scarab delivers my favorite moment of the entire issue where he just says, you really are a washout as a superhero, aren't you, Northwind? As soon as I read that, I'm like, Scott and I are going to have a lot of fun with this. Yes. Uh, because he really did suck in the previous issue. He went to get a fucking sandwich. Mm-hmm. And, and and left Hawkman in his hall of weapons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That'd be like, you know, we really want to capture the Batman. We figured out he's Bruce Wayne, so let's have him hide out in the Batcave for a little while, and maybe that'll be okay. I, I get the feeling that what Roy Thomas was going for with Norda, and correct me if, if, you, if you think I'm wrong or if you feel differently, but I get the feeling that he was trying to have a, a, a character in this that was completely innocent, completely naive, really didn't understand the, the ways of the world, almost a, a data, if you will, in, in his naivete. Okay. But between his ridiculous look, his weak-ass power set, and his ineptitude, that that really overpowers anything positive that Roy was trying to do with him, as far as making him, uh, you know, a, a data-like character. I mean, how do how do you feel about that? I could see that. I I, I really think that the the main thing behind Norda was to have somebody to give Hector some drama. Mm-hmm. He's the the son, you know, the, Hector and his dad don't get along all that well, but Norda and his dad did get along growing up. And whenever right. they went to Fivaria or however you pronounce I, I can never keep it straight how to pronounce that. Whenever they would go there, basically Hawkman would spend all, it, it seems, it probably really wasn't like that, but it seems like he would spend all of his time with Norda. And there was a, a genuine you know, kind of resentment there. And I always kind of liked that between the two characters. I thought it was a good, uh, it, it, it was good and meaty drama for the series. Uh, you know, Thomas 
love his writing as I do, and this isn't even a, a criticism, Thomas comes from the Stanley writing of comic books. Mm-hmm. Where there always has to be conflict between the characters in some way, shape, or form. They're all heroes, they're all on the same team, but that doesn't mean they all have to necessarily get along, uh, you know, every single issue. Norda, I have never had anybody come forward on Facebook or in the years that I've been talking about the character and in, in, in the time we've been talking about him on this show, I have never had anyone come forward and say, you know, you guys are being a little hard on Norda. I'm right. a Norda fan and all that. I mean, even over on the Who's Who podcast, they make fun of Norda and Harlan Freilicher, who's written, in, I think he's written into the show. Mm-hmm. He's written into that show, but I'm friends with him on Facebook. And he's a big Infinity Incorporated fan. And he hates Norda. So it's just like, Norda is the one character that it seems socially acceptable to dislike. Like, you're never going to get, you know, we'll we'll argue about Superman until the cows come home. No one's ever going to argue about the different iterations of Norda, because they probably all suck. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, I don't like bullies at all. No. And... Typically, if if there was somebody that, again, was very, you know, for lack of a better word, very sweet, very innocent, trying to to do the right thing and just not quite grasping, you know, the subtle nuances or what, I would be very defensive of that character. But there's a moment here where Norda is that character, and he's, he's trying to have a moment with Hector... And he's saying, you know, please, must we argue? You know, why can't you ever forgive me? It wasn't my fault, you know, that your childhood was the way it was. And normally I'd be like, oh, poor guy. Instead, I'm like, what a pussy. Great. (laughs) And he irritates. So in this instance, I actually forgive Hector for being kind of a dick to him. Normally that would really irritate me. And I'd be like, well, this Hector guy is such an asshole. Why is he giving this guy such a hard time? But there's something about Norda's makeup that just makes you want to smack him. Like, you know, he, he's just flat irritating. I really, really don't care for his character. But I, I did, I got a kick out of, of Hector just calling him, you know, calls him right out. You're a, you're a washout as a superhero. And then, of course, later in the story, he gets baffed in the head by a Hawkman's mace, which I just love that. But you can see the shift in the art right here on page six, where it goes from uh, Macklin to Dizaniga, and I love it. You can especially tell in the bottom three panels where Power Girl lands with the Huntress. That is very clearly uh, Dizaniga's uh, inking style there, and I just love it. Just love it. I'm I'm such a fan of his. I really enjoy his stuff a lot. But beyond that, I really did not have any specific notes. Um, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed it a lot more than I had expected to because, uh, I'll be honest at this point, now that it's all over, I was kind of growing weary of the Generation Saga. I felt it was going on a little bit too long. It was getting a little long-winded and a little rambly. But it ends on an epic note. I love this battle between mm-hmm. the JSA and Infinity Inc. This is some really good stuff, especially Superman Unleashed in this is just great because he's almost single-handedly mopping the floor with the Infinitor, <clears throat> pardon me, with the Infinitors before finally 
uh, somebody remembers, oh, yeah, that's right, there's kryptonite about, and they use the kryptonite to take him out. And what I like in that is that it's not this, the typical, you know, hey, kryptonite's just laying all over the place. Power Girl brought the kryptonite to the fight, so it's used in a very natural way. It's not like they just found it laying around on the ground like would happen in other stories. And I like the way that they, they use it to essentially take Superman out of the fight. And uh, I did. I really enjoyed it a lot. I could, I could care less about either of the brainwaves, but I do. You know, in this one instance, I do enjoy uh, the brainwaves in this particular show. Of course, this is the last, at least as far as I can remember. You know, because he appears to be dead. This is the last uh, we'll see of uh, Brainwave Senior. And I really don't care for Brainwave Jr. either, but I do like the moment where he steps up and uh, and has his battle, you know, tries to avenge his father on the Ultra Humanite. That's actually a, a really nice sequence, and I love the close-up of his eyes where he actually freaks Ultra out, where Ultra realizes, oh, shit, I'm about to get it. And he does. I, I think that was some good stuff. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I love the last splash page, too. It was really good. But that's about all I really had. I thought it was interesting. And what's, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. I was just going to say, what is strange, though, is that, you know, the, the whole story starts with Ultra threatening them. You know, and he's like, all right, I need you to do my bidding or I'm not. Or, and he says, you know, I've got this antidote, but you don't really want the antidote, right? Because if you take the antidote, then the effects are going to wear off and it's, it's going to leave you at the mercy of your, of your conscience, he says. Yeah, at the end of the story, that's exactly what happens. The thing wears off. They're back to normal again. So should their consciences be be bugging them the way that Ultra predicted that? Hey, it's just kind of strange because what Ultra was holding over their heads is exactly what ends up happening by the end of the story anyway. So it's kind of weird, but it's all kind of you know, neatly wrapped up and swept under the rug at the end of the story. I guess you're not really supposed to think about it. Yeah, I, uh, this is one of those uh, times where your thoughts and my thoughts are pretty much on the same page, really. I, I thought, you know, I was getting wearied with the Generation Saga, but this is an, you're right, this is an amazing finale. Uh, I love the battles. I love that he's, Thomas isn't afraid to have the the female members of Infinity Incorporated get into the fight and kind of get smacked around before they're finally able to really overcome, you know, who they're, you know, the people they're fighting with. Uh, the artwork is just amazing. Uh, page 12, Green Lantern looks positively evil in the uh, bottom panel. Uh, and just just everything about it is just what you would want from this type of finale. I actually felt more for the brainwave thing than I thought I was going to. And uh, and what I remembered, I was just like, that's actually legitimately sad. He really stepped up as a dad to protect his son, and then brainwave takes Ultra Humanite out. And you're right, the the look on his face when he realizes that it's, it's you know, <laughs> this isn't going my way anymore is just amazing. Uh, the understatement of the issue is on page 21, Superman saying to Power Girl, Don't blame you for being wary, Kara. I dimly recall I was pretty rough on you back in Metropolis. He rough beat on you. 
<laughs> rough <laughs> on you. <laughs> beat, beat the holy hell out of her. I'm sure Robin's going to call Huntress with the same thing. With like, no, I never put you in a, a sexually suggestive position. Right. Well, wasn't she still spot? Yeah, at the very beginning of the story, page six, last yeah. panel, she's still uh, sporting the the bruises and abrasions from that fight. So yeah, what do you think of the Don Newton pinup? Um, I'm mixed on it. I love me some Don Newton. I'm not that crazy about Alcala from this era, so I think my problems with the picture come from the Alcala inking, but it's not bad. But I'm very curious to revisit the next, I think it's three issues, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that. Because, um, spoiler, but there's, I'm almost positive it's issue three. 13, 12 or 13, is by Don Newton, and it's his last published work because he suddenly died. And I've always felt very badly about my feelings on those issues. And I think part of it, I, like I say, I'm very curious to revisit it because I'm wondering how I'm going to feel about it today. But I can remember the first time I ever read it when I was tracking down issues of Infinity Inc., as much as I love Don Newton as an artist, I was wholly unimpressed with those issues, and it always made me feel really bad that I didn't like them better, seeing as how this is, th- that was it. That's all you're ever going to get. You know, that was the very last work he ever did, and he kind of went out on a, on a whimper instead of a bang. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm interested to revisit it because hopefully I'll feel differently about it now. But I always really dug Don Newton. Um, but maybe again, maybe it was one of those things where I, you know, I, I dug him on particular characters too, cause I loved his Batman, loved his Aquaman. Uh, I just don't remember being particularly fond of the couple of issues of Infinity Inc. that he did. And looking at this picture, just my first impression was, I don't know if my opinion's going to change on that because it's not a bad pinup by any stretch, but. It looks very mid-80s independent work. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, and I, this is nothing against the man. I obviously, I, I honestly expect more from Don Newton. Mm-hmm. Considering all the beautiful work he did in Batman. And then Captain, you know, and Shazam and all that. You know, he, he has a great style. I'm going to side with you. I'm just going to assume it's the inker on this that's kind of butchering it. I, I'm, it looks too skinny. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look heroic. It's just, uh, I was just kind of disappointed. But like you, since I haven't read this since 2000, uh, it's going to be interesting 14, almost 15 years later, revisiting all of that. Right. I'm really looking forward to it because I don't remember when my read-through was, but I know it was a lot earlier than that. So I'm I'm very curious to re uh, revisit it because I look at this picture, and to my mind, to my eye, Don Newton always had a very distinctive style. I'm not seeing that style yeah. in this picture. I'm seeing the Alcala. If somebody just handed me this picture without the credits on it and said, "Who's this artist?" I'd have just said Alcala. I would not have said Don Newton because I don't see any Newton in it. So I don't know. We'll see, though. Ho- ho- hopefully, it'll, it'll you know bear out better with those issues. I can't remember who inks him on that. Is it Alcala inking him too? Yes. Uh. 
See, I'm not looking forward to that. Now we're going to get a flood of mail. You know, what's wrong with Alcala? There's nothing wrong with Alcala. I like Alcala's stuff in certain, uh, on certain projects and in certain books. But the problem is, um, by the time of this era of Alcala, I, I don't like, he, he had changed from his earlier stuff. Plus, to me, Alcala is always someone I will eternally equate with horror comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and maybe it's wrong to kind of, you know, pigeonhole people like that. But to me, he is a horror inker. And I don't think his style is conducive to a superhero book, especially a superhero book about teenage heroes. I just look at this, even this picture, just this one pinup to me has that horror comics feel to it. Even though it's a picture of a bunch of superheroes, it still feels like horror comics to me, just the way it's done. So, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it was uh, was the inking that you know the ink job that's done on it. But I don't know. It'll be curious to see. I uh, I am definitely looking forward to revisiting it because I, I remember bits and pieces of the story. I know it involves uh, Rose and Thorn and some different things like that. And then after that, I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think the very next issue is the debut of uh, McFarlane, isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking. So. F- I'm looking forward to that too because I'm I'm extremely curious how that stuff is going to hold up because when I first read it I was impressed as hell with it but when I looked back not too you know not too long ago at some of McFarlane's other early work that I was extremely enamored with back in the day when it was brand new and coming out brand new on the stands. I looked back at some of that stuff recently and was like, I liked this. So that's going to be interesting because I was taken with, uh, with McFarlane's infinity ink stuff. So that should be interesting. That should be a lot of fun. I agree. I'm looking, I'm kind of looking forward to getting into the meat of this uh, of this run, so I'm really absolutely, to it. absolutely, I'm looking forward to kind of rediscovering it because it's one of those books that, or uh, but it's one of those books that I have extremely fond memories of without having distinct memories of what the hell it was I was fond of, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? So I'm lo- I'm looking forward to to revisiting the details and seeing does it hold up? You know. How's the nostalgia versus the reality type of thing? Well, do we want to go ahead and dive into the uh, the final segment of the show oh, here? Yeah, let's do it. I am, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, I have to be honest, as much as I enjoyed both the books that we just covered, I actually, uh, in certain respects, I enjoyed uh, the, the next set of books that we're going to talk about that much more. All right, so this segment is... Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse, Crisis Management Edition. All synopses are from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. So first, we're going to take a brief look at is Justice League of America, number 234. And the synopsis on this, as it relates to the monitor, is simply the monitor observes the new Justice League in action against the Overmaster. The Monitor's role. Bottom three panels of page 22 
through the end of the story on page 24. Now, this may be the Monitor's longest appearance yet. While, again, we never see more, uh, more of him than his gloved hands or the shadowed back of his head, the Monitor uh, uh, ex, you know, exposits for basically two and a half pages about the being who calls himself Overmaster and his team, the Cadre, that consists of villains that have either been forgotten or used as loser fodder you know, beyond this point whenever they are remembered. Uh, and they were Crowbar, Black Mass, Nightfall, and Fastball. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Monitor satellite is shown, and essentially the appearance boils down to him seeing the new uh, Justice League as a wild card and speculating that a confrontation is imminent between them and the cadre. Lila calls attention to unusual activity in South Korea, or in a South Korean monastery, and they observe the recruitment of Shatterfist by the Overmaster. Um, I just had a couple notes on this one. Uh, I noticed that Lila's outfit, once again, is is a little bit different. And the thing that uh, that was different about this one is, you know, most of her appearances up to this point, I think, honestly, uh, off the top of my head, I'm going strictly off the top of my head on this one, but I think all but one of her appearances, she's been in this pink outfit. And I believe, again, all but one, she has the extremely low-cut, you know, like V-cut in the front of her pink outfit, you know, that are, is really showing off her uh, her cleavage and everything. In this particular appearance, she also has the V-cut going down the back of the mm-hmm. outfit, and it's laced together. And I yeah, thought that really that was weird. interesting. Yeah. Am I wrong in thinking that this is the, the first and only time we've seen this so far? I, with I, the... I think it is. Yeah. We also get uh, Phantom Lila at the bottom of page 23, uh, where she's just colored <laughs> all white. Yeah. I guess it's just the reflection of the monitor. Uh, not the character of the monitor. Right. The screen that she's... Uh, yeah, the... Uh... It's, um you know, a, a, as a monitor appearance, you're right, it is pretty lengthy. Uh, it's ba- base- basically used to I- introduce the cadre. Uh, I didn't really pay too much attention to the main story because at some point I really want to go through the Detroit era mm-hmm. and I don't want to just read the second part, you know, of all of that. Right. Uh, the the artwork throughout this was beautiful. Chuck Patton is just amazing. Yeah. Especially as Aquaman and Martian Manhunter. I thought both of them looked great. That was one of my notes, actually, was uh, I just simply wrote, poor Chuck Patton. You know, now, while I, I did read this issue, and while I don't think it's near as bad as what you constantly hear about the Detroit era legion, I mean, everybody makes fun of this era of, of the Justice League, you know, the Detroit era, oh, it's so terrible and all that. You know, based off of, now, I, all I've got to work with at this point is this one issue, because I've read the Detroit era, but, I mean, it was one was coming out, so my memories are super fuzzy. But reading this one issue, uh, again, wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to, and it really does come down to one thing. Vibe. Vibe sucks. So that drags it down considerably. But other than that, I actually kind of liked it. I liked the characters that were in it. I liked their interactions. Um, Some of the characters are damn likable. I really like 
uh, Steel is really, mm -hmm. I, you know, he's a lot of fun in this. And, you know, I, I do like the mix of characters. It's really, Vibe is the only one that was in here that I was like, really, this character just sucks and, and he doesn't work. And I don't know, I don't know how people felt about him at the time beyond the fact that he sucks. I mean, I can remember at the time people definitely thought that, and I, I heard a lot of that. But I wonder, at the time that he was actually, you know, that these were coming out, did people see him as kind of racist even at that time? Because definitely in hindsight, looking at it, he wow. I mean, you just read this and you're like, holy shit, how did they get away with this? But I don't know if that was really prevalent at the time or if that's just something in hindsight. I've heard a lot of anecdotes that George Perez did not like this character at all. Right. That finally there's a Hispanic character in comics and he's a walking stereotype wearing parachute pants, a t-shirt that says numero uno, and he break dances. Right. Now, having said that, while the character, I believe, and this is without reading it, so maybe when I start reading it I'll change my mind, maybe they did great things with him, but especially in this issue, is kind of a walking stereotype. Uh, my blind grandma could have done better. First you dump my sister, then you lose the gypsy. I mean, I, I can't think that Jerry Conway was going out of his way to purposefully be... to, to make the character like that, you know, out of spite or anything like that. If that right. Makes any sense. You know, he might have thought it was actually what he was supposed to, you know, like, okay, I'm actually creating, you know, a, a minority character here, and it just didn't work out. And, you know, it's like, on the other hand, Vixen comes off, like, awesome throughout the entire issue. Mm -hmm. She has a very Wolverine vibe to her. <laughs> That's one of my notes, yep. Vixen equals Wolverine is what I put, yeah. she She's definitely the, the female, female Wolverine of the, I mean... The story is called Claws, and page two is a full-page splash of her jumping, you know, at, you know, the, the bad guys as they're fleeing with her claws, you know, exposed. So I think she's supposed to remind you of Wolverine. I think that is exactly what they were going for here. And, I mean, the haircut's even the same. It's Wolverine's haircut with, with dreadlocks. <laughs> <laughs> So, Which is interesting, yeah. to be fair. But no, I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, none of those things are, are, are bad because I found no, her to, a, a very interesting character. I liked her interactions with the, the rest of the team. Um, yeah, it was, it was very strange because this mix of characters is so bizarre. You know, you've got Vixen, you've got the elongated man who I never really cared for, but he's actually mitigated a bit by his wife, who is extremely likable in this sequence. Uh, you've got Steel, who you know both you and I, Colossus. I think, are marks for that uh, for that character. Yes, yeah, very much Colossus. Aquaman is he comes off as a complete dick in this he's sequence. Cyclops. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're, you're right. It is. It's, it, there's a, a lot of analogies with uh, with the X Men. Zatanna is very Storm. In this, I think so. Yeah, I, I definitely see where they were, what they were going for with this. Uh, it, it's really, again, it's really vibe that just doesn't work for me in this at all. You've got Gypsy think, as kind of a kitty character. Yeah, and it's just one of those. 
having not read except for the very the last four issues of the the Detroit League run uh, during the Legends crossover, you know, I really can't say for sure one way or the other how I feel about it because I haven't read it, so I'm not going to sit here and dog it or anything. But it's just there is this part of me that wants it wants to like it simply because everyone else seems to not like <laughs> right, it. Right, right. Like there's a pre- like like the, you know Scott Rifen talked about this on a on a recent dinner for geeks where he he said he was he liked a fellow podcaster because he doesn't really you know he disagrees with him about things but he doesn't really tap into that hive mind of comic book fandom. And while there are certain things that the hive mind agrees with, you know, says that I agree with, you know, for the most part, I like to kind of take things as they come. You know what I'm saying? Who was he talking about? uh, He was talking about Trentus. Ah. And, you know, I'm not one of these people that's just going to like something specifically because everyone hates it, because I don't want to be that person either. Right. There is a difference between being... uh, part of the hive mind and being a contrarian. And I think that, you know, I just want to, I just want to judge things on their own. Right. And I want to see if this is really as bad as people say, because usually when something is as bad as people say, I tend to end up liking parts of it. Maybe not the whole thing, but I'll like parts of it. It's like, you know, a a good example, speaking of Trentus is when you and he were talking about Spider-Man three, it's a film that is largely mocked. X three's the same way, and while I don't like them as much as previous or future entries into the film franchise, you know, it's just there are parts of both of those movies that I enjoy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And to sit there and say the whole thing sucks, it's not true. So I, I, I am almost willing to bet. I, I, I'm willing to put money down on the fact that when I finally go through the Detroit era that I'm going to end up liking something about it so much that nothing anybody says about it sucking is really good. I'm going to be like, no, 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 no. There was this, that, and the other. Right. Right. No, I agree with you. Because I I was pleasantly surprised by this. Like I said, I've read it before, and I didn't remember it being as bad as everybody said. But, you know, there's a a lot of miles and a lot of years on that now. But rereading just this one issue i was like pleasantly surprised because I, I i really was expecting it to just be like oh god and it wasn't i actually dug it quite a bit i thought it was it was fun it was interesting uh let's see next one in the lineup is superman number 403 the monitor provides information to the thief master of Ramox about Earth, and the thief master provides information to the monitor about Ramox. The monitor's role, bottom two panels of page four and top panel of page five. The thief master acknowledges the receipt of info, and the monitor states their business is concluded. Uh, only his shadowed outline is shown. Thief Master says he thinks the Monitor's business is a strange one, but the Monitor says information is a commodity like anything else and tells Thief Master to contact him again if he ever needs more info. And that's, I mean, that is the width and breadth of his role in this story. I just had just a couple of quick things on this. I thought both stories in this issue, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, are flat stupid. but. That said, there's a couple of art moments in this first story that I thought were friggin' phenomenal, dude. 
the uh, second page, the entire yes. second page where Superman. All right, so it's a set the scene once again. Uh, the first page, which I think is actually kind of weak, you have this alien starship comes flying out of nowhere, and Superman's got to stop it from smashing into Metropolis. And on the second page, as he's trying to stop the thing, he's actually sucked into one of the air intakes by his cape, kind of incredible style. And, of course, you know, he's Superman. This isn't going to stop him. So, you know, he starts dismantling the ship. But there's a great moment where... Uh, at the bottom of page two, he's kind of digging in his his fingers into the side of the ship with the intention of he's going to change the course of this plunging starship. And I just I really loved this entire sequence because much like Superman Returns, you could see that, you know, Superman had to apply himself. He had to kind of battle physics and the elements to to turn this whole situation around. I loved it. I, I really like the look on his face. It's you know, it's raw, gritted teeth, determination, and uh, some really, really good stuff. The other moment that just floored me because I just by this point, and again, I, I know we've beat this point to death before. At least I feel like I have. That this era of Kurt Swan, I was pretty much over Kurt Swan by this point. So I was really impressed to find something that is so close to the end of Swan's run that made me look at it and go, oh, my God, this is beautiful, and I love it, is this sequence on page 11 where Superman is standing on what essentially looks like the Twin Towers. You are just, you just, you and I are just on such the same page this this week. Yeah. Because I, that second page, like you said, is just gorgeous. The shot of him standing there and then just kind of leaping down and then yeah. flying off is great. He just drops. He he's he's literally standing on top of of one of the you know the I don't know what he calls it here. It's like the one of the World Trade Centers, and he just steps off into nothingness. And he's falling, but he's falling in like a almost like a Christ like position with his cape out behind him. And when he gets to a certain uh you know, a certain depth or a certain altitude, however you want to look at it, because he's falling, then he just kind of streaks off and, and casually flies around. Of him yeah. in thought with his hair kind of must as the wind is blowing his cape. And then there's this next panel where he's teeny tiny, shown silhouette with his cape again, building behind him. And you really get a sense of perspective and scale that, you know, He's tiny on top of these World Trade Centers, and then that great shot of him falling towards uh, this the street level. I, that combination—I don't know what it is about it, but it's just masterfully done, and I I really liked that. And uh, it, it, it salvaged the issue for me because the rest of it, as I say, I I thought I'm sorry, you know, with apologies to the writer. Who the hell's the writer on the first Paul story? Pepper. Oh, it's the same. Same writer on both. Sorry, Paul. You know I love you, buddy, but these stories were just dumb. They were really bad. Especially the second one was really goofy. And again, Superman, uh, pre-crisis Superman, with no regard for the brain damage that he might be causing his friends when he just super hypnotizes one of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking of art, page 14, those two uh, face shots of Superman in the middle of the page are really good as well. Shows a lot of character. It's it's one of the things when I was reading through this, I was just so like the art just grabbed me. Mm -hmm. 
in a way that swan art usually doesn't i think part of it and i meant to make a note on this so i'm glad you brought that up i think part of it is uh bob ostner or ox it's oxner i always want to say ostner but it's oxner which is a very strange last name oxner I've noticed this before that he's a very strong inker and uh, I think he's kind of shoring up uh, or, or at least, you know, complimenting, I should say, uh, Swan's art in this, but I did dig it. It's what, what hurts it art wise is the thief master himself is a very poorly designed villain. He he's, like comedy alien. He looks like an alien that you'd see right out of like a hostess Twinkies ad or something. He just, he, he's funny looking, you know, like funny haha, and doesn't work for me at all. Plus the story is just, it's really silly. But yeah, I, I, I do think the art, uh, you know, Superman in the art is uh, is really nice. I even like the art with Superman in the second story as well. I, I you know, I think I've said before that I, uh, I'm not the biggest Alex Saviak fan in the world, but I like Saviak's take on Superman. I, mm-hmm. I think Superman is a very clean, lean and uh, and dynamic take on Superman, and I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I, you know, th- this is one of those eras where I, I kind of give a large pass to the stories because this is kind of the wrap up, right? Uh, you know, leading into Man of Steel, and you know, the Bronze Age had ups and downs, and Kupperberg's a Kupperberg's a good writer, so I'm not gonna sit there and, and try to be, uh, you know, to to pick too much, right? Uh, but it, but it's always great seeing Saviak. I, I I like his Spider Man as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just my, my kind of final note outside of the fact that the, the monitor stuff was kind of superfluous to the plot. So, so <laughs> yeah. it's like, we needed to put him here and now he's gone. Is that as much as I love Kurt Swan drawing Superman, as much as I love watching him draw the people in Metropolis and Metropolis itself, he was never really good with aliens. No. Uh, they all tended to, you know, this is a, this is an original looking alien for, for Swan. And I hope Bob Fisher isn't pissed with us right now, but. <laughs> uh, it's an original-looking alien, but most of his aliens end up looking like something you would see, like, like this is what Star Trek wanted to do, basically. Right. So, that's all I had on this one. All right. Next one up is World's Finest, number 311. As a test of Superman and Batman, the Monitor gives a young hacker the chance to tap into the supercomputer at the Fortress of Solitude. The monitor's roll, page one, opening splash, and the first two panels of uh, page two, where the monitor notes how aloof and inaccessible Superman and Batman are to the hoi polloi and wonders what would occur if someone were to make them a bit more accessible than they would like to be. Also, pages 22 and 23, as the monitor analyzes and philosophizes about the events of the story, Lila takes a call from the network. Uh, whom the Monitor challenges to prove themselves worthy of facing off against the world's finest team. Now, once again, only the Monitor's gloved hands are shown, but also this time his arms are shown, and the costume could just as easily be the Ted Core Blue Beetles, by the way yeah. uh, it's colored, because he has you know the, the light, almost like sky blue 
arms with the dark blue gloves, it does very much look like uh, Blue Beetle is the one that's uh, watching the, the screens in this one. I thought that was interesting. Uh, we're treated to an exterior shot of the satellite once again, and Lila's costume is pretty much the standard one that we've seen in most of her appearances, so, so nothing really new with, uh, with Lila. Despite the poor cover, um, Paris Collins and uh, Klaus Jensen, I'm sorry, they do not mix no. at all. And I like Paris Collins. It really pains me. This is a weak... Actually, Batman doesn't look bad, but the rest of the cover I don't like at all. And the story, again, forgive me, the story's kind of stupid. Despite that, I liked this issue. I liked it a lot. This could have been my my favorite uh, of the four, uh, although, like you pointed out, uh, you know, the tale, the, the Legion one that we're going to talk about, uh, you know, features, features one of my favorite characters. But honestly, uh, art-wise, anyway, this was definitely my favorite because you had uh, the art of Stan Walk as the penciler and Pablo Marcus as the inker. And, damn, I think they knock it out of the park art-wise in this. Really beautiful to look at. I love their take on Superman. I love their take on Batman. Everything looks really, really nice. A um, couple of real quick notes. Damn, Gotham's got everything, man, including a missile site right out of t- right outside of town. I'm like, really? I mean, it looks like they're they're literally launching, like, rocket ships <laughs> right outside of Gotham. So, Yeah. All these towns have everything in the DC universe back well, in this time. They need it, don't they? I, it's like Smallville having an amusement park, like, just past the Kent farm. Like, really? I thought it was called Smallville. Although, I say that, and then I, I'm just waiting for you to remind me that uh, it was actually named for someone named Small. It, w- it was not a reference to the size of the town. Well, I, I know, I, I know that in the post-crisis it was. In pre-crisis, it was kind of on the outskirts of, uh, of, of Metropolis, and there was a Bigville as well. So, <laughs> it, 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 it's possible. What I liked about this story was one, the art, and two, I just like that the the um, the uh, monitor was brought in very organically. Yes. Uh, to the story. Now, the whole hacking thing is funny, but the, I just find computers, you know, 20, 30 years ago and, and, and what they thought they could do and what they could actually do is usually um, kind of pretty few and far between. There's a funny moment on page five where uh, David's brother comes in and says, David, mom says you should let me read your new Teen Tyros comics. Right. It's just like, that's a a nice little dig at the at the uh, competition but to be fair david's got good taste he's got star trek posters right you know what this actually kind of reminds me of more than anything was that hacker character that was friends with uh captain america that ran his like you know computer uh like you could type in you know like you could message captain america and this character would put you in contact with him do you, Ooh, do you remember who I'm talking I about? do not remember that. During, I, during the Gruenwald era, yeah, there was a character like that. I forget what his name was. I remember Microchip from Punisher, but I don't remember the that Cap had an equivalent. It wasn't the same guy, was it? Because that no, it was, was a, really it was a cool. kit. It was an oh, actual okay. kit. Oh, okay. No, I don't remember that. Uh, 
I also like the fact that Cavalieri brings in the Transformers in a very subtle way. I was going to talk about that because I called them for what I feel they really are. These are Kryptonian battle suits, dude. And yeah, a little bit. I know that you have one of these. Uh-huh. The the action figure I'm talking about. Did you catch that not only does the damn thing look like the action figure, you know, the what what it was, folks, is uh Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. Wasn't that part of the Man- Superman Man of Steel toy line? Yes. And there was a it was a Kryptonian battle suit that was probably I don't know three four times the height of the action figure, and you could take your Superman action figure and put it inside the cockpit of the battle suit. It had a little you know a little uh, like cockpit window that lifted up, and you could put your figure in there, and it would it would sit in the cockpit of this battle suit, which was essentially like a giant robot. But also, it had a battering ram mm-hmm. uh, hand on one side, and on the other side, it had a claw hand that had a see-through little window, and in that little window, it held a chunk of kryptonite. Yep. Damned if that's not the case in this story, this mm-hmm. robot has, well, one of his hands is a vice grip, so it's not a battering ram, but the other one has... uh like a like a clamp type of thing where he, when he opens it up, he's holding a chunk of kryptonite. So he's got Superman in one hand and exposing him to kryptonite in the other hand. And when I saw that, I just geeked out so hard because I'm wondering, did those post-crisis battle suits in any way owe back to this somehow? Might have a little bit. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Because, I mean, they look really similar, but I liked that. I mean, come on. We've already Superman battles robots. He's like in his in his home element anyway. But this was really cool because they are very much transformer type robots. But then when you get the resemblance to the Kryptonian battle suit and one of them's holding kryptonite, I was just I was losing my shit, man. I was like, oh my god, this is awesome. You know what I just noticed uh, on page twenty two? David's got an Ultravox poster. They were a British new wave band in the 80s. <laughs> I saw that but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, they they had a they had a song that I liked quite a bit. Uh I forget what it's called. Uh but I know that the 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 line the power and the glory till my kingdom come is in it and it's just one of those it's a song I heard when I was a teenager. I really liked it and then I only just recently decided, "Hey, if I google those lyrics, I'm mm-hmm. sure something will pop up, and uh, and damn if it didn't take me right back. But if this kid's this kid's into Star Trek, he reads New Teen Tyro comics. He's into Ultravox. This kid's awesome. Star Wars. He's yeah. got Star Wars posters. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh yeah. The, those are definitely X Wings and Tie Fighters. Yep. <laughs> Oh, I liked this a lot. I mean, I'm yeah, always, always a sucker for Superman's pre-crisis Fortress of Solitude, so that that had me roped in. I love the way Superman looks in this. Stan Walk draws Superman to look like the Superman uh, 12-inch action figure that I used to have as a kid, the, the one that came out right around the time of Superman the movie. I think that's one of the reasons I really liked his look in this. Um, what else did I have on this? couple this story though superman by zapping the hell out of the kryptonite that's poisoning him 
actually reaction that makes the kryptonite explode like a nuclear blast i'm like that's a little weird wow where did that come from but it's cool though and that it's a full page splash when it goes off that's a really nice shot i like that one you've got this basically a kryptonite mushroom cloud with superman streaking away from it that was pretty cool and one of my favorite things in the whole thing because at first i was going to make fun of it until i realized wait a minute this this is actually bat themed so batman he uh while Superman's fighting the robots, Batman gets a clue and he's figuring out what's going on. So he takes off to go track down, uh, what's the kid's name? David. Uh-huh. And you see him swing down to street level and jump into this car. Now, even though Batman has a car and I know this, right? I know he has a car. He has the Batmobile. Seeing him drive regular vehicles just amuses me no end. So I thought he just like swiped somebody's car. But then when I went back and I paid more attention the second time around, no, that is a Batmobile, but it's red. Mm-hmm. I've never seen him drive a car that wasn't blue or black before. Detective this is actually Comics 27. Hmm? Detective Comics 27. What's he driving that one? A red sedan. <laughs> I guess you're right. I never really thought of it. I, I, I don't usually go that far back, to be honest with you. But, yeah, I guess you're right. But this is – it just cracked me up because – it's so easy, or rather, I should say, it's uh, yeah, it's it's so easy to miss that bat face on the on the hood of this car in that top panel on page seventeen, and and so the next two panels just looks like he's just driving a regular old red car, but it is actually a, a Batmobile. It's just so subtly done; it doesn't really look like a Batmobile. I just got a kick out of that. I thought that was really cool. But that was about it. I, you know, that was about all I had on this. I yeah, that's pretty much all I had. Too. I dug it. I thought the art was really nice, uh, even though the story was like, eh, whatever. So it was nice to get a, a really good issue of uh, World's Finest for a change, you know, art-wise. Anyway, they didn't typically put the uh, the A team on uh, the art chores on on World's Finest from around this time. All right, last book for this time is The Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, number 319. The Monitor provides Universo with the services of a thief named Magpie. Now, that's the synopsis from the crossover index. doesn't really fit for this particular issue because this is the first of two back-to-back Monitor appearances in Tales of the Legion of Superheroes. So... uh, that's not exactly what happens in this one. The monitor's role in this one is strictly on page seven. The monitor observes the Legion of Superheroes and notes that the team is a uh, is in a bit of disarray at this point. And again, we see nothing more of him than his gloved hand. Uh, we get another exterior shot of the satellite, and Lila, again, looks much the same as every other appearance, although her outfit is particularly low-cut. And daring, and she's particularly busty in this one, too. I, I really like the way she was drawn in uh, in this particular issue. But that was pretty much it for uh, the monitor on this. Um, I did have a few notes. I really dug the story on this one because, essentially, it had something or other to do with Shadow Lass's planet. And I didn't care so much about that aspect of the story as I like the fact that 
the the baddie of the story is able to put some sort of mental whammy on Monel that makes him just go just bonkers. Yeah, he because, loses his shit. Yeah, he completely loses it because he's being forced to relive the experience of having been trapped in the Phantom Zone for a thousand years, which, you know, that's that's gotta mess you up. So I loved the the top panel on page two was my favorite shot of the whole book. Monel is clutching his head and saying, everything's crowding in on me, all the memories. And he's basically having a delusion that he's going to go back into the Phantom Zone again. And so we see a brief little shot of, uh, of General Zod and uh, Vaycox. And who would the other guy be? Or not Vaycox, of Jaxer, rather. Jaxer and... Is the other guy Cruel? Which page are we talking about? Page two, uh, the very first panel at the top of the page, you've got Monel as a phantom, and then he's being taunted by like the giant floaty heads of the Phantom Zone villains. And the first guy there with the cap, that's clearly General Zod. Yeah. And, and then you've got Jaxer... And I think the other guy's, I think, supposed to be Cruel, but I don't remember him having a goatee. Wouldn't surprise me if it was Cruel. I'm not sure who that's supposed to be. not specific about it either, so. Right, yeah, exactly. Outside of General Zod. And then you've got Superman and Lois Lane kind of getting it on, and then the next little bit is, uh, at least I presume it's Metropolis, being nuked, so... We're getting a glimpse of the events that he was witness to in the thousand years that he was in the zone. I like that. I, I like that sort of thing a lot. I really enjoyed this. I love Monel. He he was one of my absolute favorite pre-crisis uh, DC characters. And as much as you know, you know that I'm a I'm a post-crisis boy. He was one of the casualties of the crisis that. I actually did mourn quite a bit. There, there was no, unfortunately, there was just no saving Monel past well, the crisis, which was a shame. At least they did things with Largand as a character. Oh yeah, and and made him something different, and and kept him around in that role of being, you know, the the kind of like the the, the Superboy when Superboy is not there. Right. Uh, and, you know, I just, you know, like you, I, I, I like the character from hindsight. Uh, but it was his who's who entries that really grabbed me because the two entries he had, that costume looks just badass. Mm-hmm. So, now, I, again, at some point I'm going to sit down and read all my Legion stuff and it's going to take me like through 40 years of the team. So it's going to be interesting to see how everything evolved. I thought the, the, the monitor stuff was okay. Uh, yeah. Again, it's it's weird seeing it in the future, but again, you know, as we've been saying all along, it's it's so kind of scattershot and and, and schizophrenic. Well, I'm using that term wrong, but still bear with me. Uh, that you know, there there is no one defining monitor character and Lila characterization until we actually get to Crisis. Right. So. Right. No, but it was a good issue. We get another uh, one page of uh, Dev M in action, which I enjoyed quite a bit because this dude just relishes being a Kryptonian and being able to cut loose in a way that uh, Superboy and even Mon-El to a, to a large degree never really did. So I like that. He's not afraid to be kind of the bad boy. And, uh, and I like that. I thought he was pretty cool. Uh, question for you. 
Let me see if I can find the page where this happens here. It is... Damn, where the hell is it? I've lost it. I should have made a specific page reference. Oh, here it is. Page 17, next to last panel, we see the persuader who, if I'm not mistaken, his axe can actually cleave dimensions, I think. And he's he rears back with his axe. He's intense on killing whoever the hell this guy is. I think it's Shadowass's brother, if I'm not mistaken. He swings his axe, and at super speed, Monel comes flying into the situation, sticks out his arm. There's a massive explosion, and he has saved the life of this kid. And he he tells the persuader, he just says, consider that a demonstration of irresistible force meeting immovable object. Why didn't the axe just cleave his arm off? Because I thought the axe could cut through anything. I would yeah. swear that there was a story where, uh, much like in a mock time, you know, where where Spock swings the thing and uh, and cuts Kirk's shirt. I thought that happened to Superboy at one point. It where might he, have. Um, yeah, I'm not really super sure. The thing that stands out to me on that page is there's a panel where, uh, you know, you gave me quite a scare lover, and Monel says sorry. That panel was used in some advertisements. Yes later on and now i finally get to see where it came from yeah and it's funny too because i would have sworn that that panel that particular panel was a uh was a keith giffen because shadow last looks very keith giffen right there but i don't think giffen's involved at all in this story no nope, not at all no he is not it's terry shoemaker, shoemaker and carl kessel, carl kessel. Yeah. yeah yeah so that's very interesting and levitz is the writer on this one too um, last thing I've got on this one, always nice to see Superboy, although it has to be said, his plan is absolutely mental. How in the hell does this work? It's explained that, so, so basically, you know, at the very beginning of the, of the story, as we said, you know, Monel just goes completely bug shit crazy, right? Because of what's this mental whammy that's been done in him. We lose him for a while in the story, and we focus on other characters. And then that sequence with the persuader—I can't even say it—persuader—is where he comes back into the story. All, but at that point, he's back to normal again. Well, the very last portion of the book is basically explaining. Oh, by the way, how did you get your marbles back? And it's because we get this reveal of Superboy comes streaking in. And Superboy is holding a Phantom Zone projector. And this is his words. He says, uh, he says, Saturn Girl suggested that the best way to shock Monel back to reality was to repeat his worst memory. The instant <laughs> when I projected him into the Phantom Zone to save his life. Uh, excuse me, Superboy. Wasn't that what made him go absolutely friggin' mental in the first place? Was the, reliving the memory of his worst day? I'm pretty sure that's what it says at the very beginning of this book because we see it. So that didn't make any sense to me at all that that would snap him out of it. It seems like that would just, <laughs> that would crack him <laughs> even worse. But he, you know, Monel says thanks anyway, and, you know, he's off to, to new adventures. So I didn't understand that at all. I really do. I, I would have liked to have seen it more that Superboy just came in and talked him down or something. I don't know. 
I thought that was very strange. But again, it was nice to see Superboy, though. I, you know, I always enjoy the two of them and their their interaction. As a matter of fact, I was uh, uh, digging around on eBay today, and just by dumb luck and happenstance, I see where there is a dirt cheap copy of it's coverless, which is why I guess why it's dirt cheap. But it's a dirt cheap copy of. Um, Superboy is it eighty nine? Is that the one with the first Monel? Whichever issue it is, it's the first Monel. And I gotta look at my collection because I'm not sure I have that. I think I have the first reprinting of the story, but I don't think I have the actual first appearance of uh, of Monel. And I might have to pick that up because, again, always one of my favorite characters. Really dig Monel a lot. But that's pretty much all I got this time around. Do we want to? Do we want to reveal what a uh, next episode's going to bring? Absolutely. So next time around, we are covering two, just two issues. They are two phenomenal issues that I hope you guys are going to be really excited about. We are going to tackle the first two issues of a four-issue miniseries entitled America versus the Justice Society. And uh, finally, yeah, it's been a, a long time coming, but man, I'm really looking forward to it. I have very fond memories of that one as well as, uh, as I'm sure a large uh, percentage of our listening audience does as well. If you've ever read it before, I'm sure you know what we're talking about. And uh, that should be a lot of fun. I think we're going to have a blast with that. And that, you know, as I say, that coverage is going to last two issues. It's a four-issue mini, so we're going to tackle two issues uh, each episode. Beyond that, what did we figure, Mike? We have two more episodes. Two more episodes. And then, uh, yeah, and then it's the big time. And we'll, uh, we'll have some special things and some special announcements and all kinds of stuff for you guys. So, uh... So stick with us in our uh, our often erratic release schedule, and uh, there's good stuff coming down the road, uh, we promise. No, we don't. <laughs> You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, 
you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 